Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hi, and welcome. I'm Peter Hart, and I'm with Gary Bain. He's lovely, and uh, we're, we're back on Zoom. What could have happened? What could have, Well, I'll tell you what's happened. The government has put London back on uh, what we call Tier 2. Tier 2 restrictions. Tears for souvenirs is all you, you have money. Me. <laughs> I've shed a tear or two for you. You're Ken Dodge, you are. Well, apart from the scarce accent, the hair in the... T- no, I've got the teeth. And he's dead. Uh, yeah, and apart from that... <laughs> Perhaps, I sounded uh, very much like perhaps, him, then. Uh, perhaps soon, Gary. Perhaps soon. Mm. Anyway, uh, anyway what yes. We today? Well, today, uh, some of you might remember we did uh, a, a special on an interview I did with Montague Cleave. He was a, f- well, I didn't do it, uh, Lynn Smith, but we picked him out as a good oral history and, and did a sort of thing about his life. Well, <clears throat> this this week we're doing one that, that I did. Uh, and it's a really different left field one for us, isn't it? It's Tommy Flowers. Who is Tommy Flowers, Gary? Well, he sounds like a sort of 1940s stage entertainer, didn't he? Hello, Tommy Flowers here. Hello, hello, hello. Is that the sort (laughs) of fella he was? He's he's a genius, and uh, um, it it was strange how I got to interview him. Uh, My local MP got in touch with me and said... uh, this bloke's not been properly honoured. Can, can, you know, at least the War Museum could go and interview him. And what he did was he's the man who had a lot to do with the construction and design of Colossus, the first ever proper computer, uh, which uh, which helped in decoding uh, German uh, cri- crypto sig- signals uh, in... What, what you mean like, like the Enigma? Yeah, like the Enigma. The uh, he helped with that. And then also with something called Fish or Lorenz. Lorenz, and then there's a number. Um, so uh, I interviewed him for the War Museum back in 1998. And you can hear this interview on the, the Imperial War Museum website. I'll give you the address and put the address up for people. Uh, it's three hours long. Uh, and uh, it was it, it's about a civilian, so it's quite unusual for me. Um, let, let's have a, a little uh, look. Let's talk about him a bit. So uh, uh, when was he born, Gary? Well, I, I quite, I'm quite looking forward to, to doing the readings today because uh, Tommy Flowers was born in uh, East London, popular East London, on the 22nd of December 1905. Uh, his parents then moved to East Ham, which is also in London, the same year. So my accent and my impression will be spot on this week. Yeah, to to my memory and from listening to it, I'll leave that. Uh, uh, no, he wasn't quite as very, common. He wasn't very humble com- beginnings. His, yeah. his father was a, a bricklayer, uh, and then he he moved in. He built bakeries and installed the machinery and that sort of thing. But very very humble. And uh, Flowers, unlike you, was educated at. Um, Local schools in East Ham. So he went, he went I wasn't, I wasn't educated at a school in no, East Ham. You, you went to Liverpool University, didn't you? Yes, I did. Went. <laughs> I went a lot to the pub. Uh, we've got we've got a, a bit of a quote. Not all geniuses start uh, start well. I mean, you're an example of this, Gary. I think uh, a, a lot of people have said you'd never have thought he'd make good. No, a lot of people said that, and Nobody a lot of other people, a, genius, a, a lot of other people have said, "Has he made good?" Has he? Has he really? Has he really made good? 
Well, this is uh, this is Flowers talking about his education. Um, he says, I just went to local schools. I didn't have a very good start. I got left behind at one time in class. I was a late developer, I think, because about a year after I went into the juniors, I seemed to blossom out. I became top of the form and more or less top or near the top. I was good at arithmetic, mathematics, not so good at English. My verbal ability has always been a handicap to me. I can think, but I can't talk. Sadly, you can both, uh, you, Gary, can both think, and sadly, you talk rather a lot, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Mind you, to be fair, that's an advantage on a podcast, isn't it? I mean, let, let's let's not beat about the bush here. But Flowers, he always had a bit of a practical bent. <laughs> You've got... Uh, we'll leave that joke. Uh, and uh, here he is talking about... Now, this is an actual... Rec- we're, we're doing what we did on Cleve. We're going to insert uh, various uh, um, excerpts Stop. from the interview. <laughs> I can see you were worrying about what... Well, you are, you're you about five miles away, Gary. You're quite safe from any insertions here. here here's uh, Tommy Flowers talking about his hobbies. I was always keen on making things. I used to spend a lot of time... My father had uh, been... Uh, a craftsman had quite a good uh, collection of tools like hand saws and so forth. And so I, I made great use of that. I used to like to make boats and to sail boats. There was a, a pond that I could, I could go on the tram and sail my boat on the pond. And I, I tried to make windmills later on when I got in my, my teens. I tried making electrical gadgets, like electric motors. I mean, I had a, I, I, I had a steam engine, you know, one of these little toy things. She uh, filled up with water and, and uh, fired it with uh, methylated spirits, and uh, and it would, would turn the wheel, turn the wheels around. And the, and I, my great mechano, you know, the uh, I had a, quite a a large mechanic set, and I used to make uh, things and, and drive, make, make make them go round by, 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 by a steam engine. Now, uh, so there you go. And uh, I love the way he pronounces, I mean, he may be a genius, but how do you pronounce Meccano? I pronounce Meccano. It Meccano. <laughs> and I remember thinking, they just know how to pronounce Meccano. It's Meccano. <laughs> So not yeah. There you go. I'll pro- now probably I had, we'll a, get... I had a Meccano. So I mean, a, a lot of the things he talks about uh, sort of resonate. Right, I was a child of the sixties, but I can remember trying to play with Meccano and failing miserably. Oh, I had a set, and you, they, they had these things, that, and you, you could build sort of a a, a, a sort of bridge windmill or, or bridge, and it seemed quite easy. But I always just ended up with a load of metal bits sort of strewn around the floor, and and, and, <laughs> and losing the spanner. And a sort of childish tantrum. Yeah. They took it away from me in the end. And that's why, listeners, I'm not a genius engineer. And I'm instead a third-rate historian. Uh, now, he, he went to... Uh, he, he was a working-class lad, so this is a working-class education of the time for the bright. He went to East Ham Technical College from uh, 1917 to 1922. And he had a, a good education. Uh, it's it's the foundation of his career uh, uh, as an engineer. But I remember I, I asked him about the war and the impact it had on him. And uh, he was quite young, but uh, he, he did remember one thing, and that was uh, when the Zeppelins came over. When the Zeppelins came over, one of them was shot down in flames. I was out in the front garden uh, watching the shells bursting, watching the Zeppelin was uh, caught in the uh, by searchlight, so it was... And I was very interested. I saw the thing burst into flames and burn and drop to the ground. I wasn't frightened. And, and it must—it must be amazing to have seen that, mustn't it? To see a, a zeppelin crash and burn. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, you know, you, you forget about the children of the Great War and what you know, what they saw and, and the new experiences that uh, uh, that they had and, and endured in some cases. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to think of somebody watching that Zeppelin caught in the searchlights. Yeah, amazing. Now, uh, he left Technical College uh, in 1922. Uh, 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 I'm not quite sure when he left. He, he seems to have got... I'm a bit vague about his education. Uh, he, 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 he then went into uh, 
he did an engineering course, which he didn't tell me about at all. He got a bit confused about this. Uh, and then he joins the post office in uh, 1926. And uh, you're going to ex- explain what happened to him. The post office was just starting a recruitment drive because they decided to install automatic telephone exchanges in place of the manual. In order to do that, they had to recruit a lot of technical engineers. They advertised an open examination for boys of my age, school leavers, to take this competition. I took the competition. That was theory, completely theoretical. Geometry, trigonometry, mathematics, physics. We did have to write an essay. I came first, actually. He was a bright bunny, wasn't he? Um, he joined the post office in 1926, and he, uh, he, he was meant to get two years training. And if it all worked out, he got a permanent appointment. Uh, he would, now, he's based initially in Islington at the post office stores department for the telephone service. That sounds an exciting place to work, doesn't it, uh, Gary? Um, and there, he actually tested telephone equipment, the various equipment of the... And it's not just the telephones, of course. In fact, it's more the exchanges, the telephone exchanges. And this is a key point of the uh, of the interview and of his work, telephone exchanges. He was then, after three months, in 1920, still 1926, sent to, as a, as a technician and research engineer, uh, to the circuit laboratory at King Edward Street Post Office, which is, uh, you know that one probably, it's near St. Paul's. Near St. Paul's, yeah. yeah. And here, they're actually developing new telephone exchange equipment. And at the same time, he's also attending evening classes uh, in telephone engineering, and he eventually gets a degree uh, in electrical engineering, uh, under his own bat, if you like. Uh, he, he complained he never got any formal training off the post office, despite various promises, but you know, he didn't. Uh, and you've got something about that, haven't you? Yeah, he says, the instruction I got came from the classes, not from the post office. They just chucked me in at the deep end and told me to get on with it. This was all new technology. We had drawings and descriptions from the manufacturers, so I had to read up all that. There were other people in the laboratory who were experts, so I could always get help. We had a lot of ex-soldiers, people who'd come back from the war, but their knowledge was very elementary. It was rather a curious situation, because they would talk about some piece of equipment in their language, which I didn't understand. Then they'd get into the theoretical part of it, and I knew all about that. I knew all about the theory, but I didn't know anything about the practical side. They thought I was a bit of a mug. I, I like the thought of these uh, these First World War signals. They'd be from the Royal Engineers Signal Service, most of them, wouldn't they? Uh, yeah. Uh, can you imagine <laughs> this young... They're, they're, they've had years on the Western Front with fuller phones and, and all the switchboards and, and, and telephone systems that were established. And then they've got this bloke talking about... about well, I, I'm so ignorant, I don't even know what he would have been talking about. But it would have been science stuff, wouldn't it, Gary? It would have been. Were you good at science at school? No. So you couldn't have been a world-famous scientist? No, strangely enough. Ah. Anyway, uh, they were all designing and testing this new equipment. Uh, flowers. Yeah, we should, we should, em- should emphasise this, you know, this is state-of-the-art, isn't it? He, he is working with up-to-date state-of-the-art equipment, which we look back on and think, well, you know, it's all really old-fashioned and mechanical switches and things like that. But it's state-of-the-art at the time. I think that's a great point, Gary. When people say things are primitive, that's what they do. They do it with aeroplanes as well. Oh, that primitive aeroplane or that primitive uh, exchange equipment. It's not primitive. It's state-of-the-art. What a great point. Anyway, uh, this is uh, Flowers talking about uh, uh, putting in the new equipment. As each piece of equipment was was designed, it had to be made. And we tested those parts. And uh, very often the mechanism didn't work properly. Electrical equipment, switching equipment, had to be designed, had to have a circuit connection between the connections between all those these various things using relays. Well, a relay is is an is an electromechanical switch. It makes contact. You have two pieces of metal, strips of metal with silver contacts on the end, and they can be either open or closed. And the, the opening or closed was done by the magnet. The, the magnet it was a magnet which, to close the contacts, 
you, you switch the magnetic clothes of contact, you switch the current off, and there's a gun Hundreds of thousands of these things. We not only had those switches, but we also had ratchet switches, switches which had contacts in an arc, see, 25 contacts in an arc, and every time you operated the magnet, you moved the uh, contacts on one step. Now, uh, I didn't understand all of that. Did you understand all of that? Yeah. <laughs> Did you? You sound abstracted. It's as if your mind had fluttered off somewhere else. No, no, I understood it. It's, uh, so he's talking about, you know, if you've got one switch, it's got two positions off and on. You've got two We're switches. not there. We're not there yet. You've gone oh, too well. early. I always do. So he, the, the beginner... I was actually going to talk about contacts, Peter, being oh. open or closed, but never mind. Tell me about contacts being open or closed. Your contacts often close to you after a little while, don't they? No, they can be open or closed. Right. So that's a contact to you, open or closed. Yeah. Now, they begin a, a series of experiments. They're modelling, they're testing, and they resolve any of the numerous problems with these. That What they're doing is working out an automatic dialing system, an automatic elect, electric, electrical exchanges. So what was the situation before? They'd have a, a, a lady, or a, it would be a lady mostly, but let's be non-sexist, a person who would actually connect by wire you know, someone would ring up. Could I be... Uh, yeah, they... you used to see it on films and things, didn't they? And you used to uh, get through to the exchange and the exchange would say, what number do you require? And they'd say, oh, fire a police or, you know, Holtz White's hotel. And, and they'd, they'd move the plugs around and connect uh, this, them. This is an automatic way. So what you'd get is... What you got is you got... Uh, if you remember a telephone, do you remember it had ABC on it? Yeah, uh, I do, yeah. And, and the, the, that would... Uh, get the exchange you wanted and then one to ten and then there'd be the number and it would all be done electronically and they're working this all out theoretically they're testing out solutions and eventually they, they were they were successful he was and it was to, the first exchange was in holborn wasn't it i think so yeah um uh, yeah uh, they, they were coming along and in the 1930s there's several of them up and running thanks to uh, thanks to well to flowers and the teams of people uh, doing it. He did a lot of work at home, uh, pouring on circuit diagrams, just like we uh, go through our work as, as historians. For this working, podcast, yeah. Working, working. We never stop working, do we, Gary? No. For our lovely listeners, though, isn't it? We love each one of them individually and severally. <laughs> do you love them severally, Gary? <laughs> no. You don't? <laughs> You only love them as individuals. I love them all as individuals. Right, well, that's fair enough. Now, um, so his initial works are automatic switching and testing equipment from the from the you know the, from the, they get them from the electrical manufacturers. Now, his biggest role is in the introduction of electronic uh, valves to replace the mechanical switches. This is to extend the range of long range long distance dialing and and also to make things faster. I introduced valves, semi-automatic valves. You see, we had. Telephone switching. We had only mechanical switching. The valve, the semi-ionic valve, it can also be used as a switch, and it it'll switch very quickly in a, in a fraction of a millisecond. Whereas the fastest switching mechanical switch that we had was only switching a thousandth of a second. We that was the limit to the road. I remember uh, this valve business and this switch business, and I remember. Asking you know, can, can I just establish, the valves are, are like you used to see in the old radiograms and that sort of things. They're, they're like literally glass glass bulbs, for want of a better word. Yeah, that I, sort of valve. I had to look up what thermionic valve was. Uh, oh, what is it? It's a valve. <laughs> <laughs> I think the word thermionic's just to confuse me. <laughs> and you, Yes, you remember. And um, the, 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 the whole idea of, of what he's doing is... Uh, and I asked him to explain it. Uh, we could go, we could run through the conversation now because uh, you started a bit early before, but let's do it now. And I remember sat in front of him, and you could play the part of me, and I'll play the part of Tommy Flowers, and I think we'll end up with the same result. And he sa he said to me, and I I now say to you, Gary, do you understand a switch? Yeah. How how a valve can be a switch. So what does that get? What's a switch? Well, you can have two positions on a switch. You can have off and on. Brilliant. Is that all? Well, on one switch. 
Now, if you've got two switches connected together, how can you get what? What is the variety of? of well, you of don't comb- have a combination, don't you? You can have off off, you can have on on, or you could have off on, or in fact, you can have on off. So you've got variations. Uh, so you, you've got you've got a, a combination, and that, and I can, can you see whether that might be useful? Yeah. Now, but not not for just two switches. I presume you go now, further than that. Can you explain to me then? And I remember him saying this to me, and he said, so you understand then how if you have hundreds, if not thousands of these valves, you can send complex messages. I remember what I said. I said, no. (laughs) I don't don't understand. You explain it to me. Well, taking my my earlier explanation a bit further, you could then have, oh, no, 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 I wish I'd said that to him. <laughs> oh, no, 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 off, on, on, off, on, 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 on. No, but the point is that you can then, all joking aside, it can then become really complicated, can't it, in the sense that you can then use it for complicated uh, messaging through the positions of the contacts. So, and the thing with the valve is, I should imagine, it's a lot, lot quicker. That that was that was the whole thing, wasn't it? It was quick, 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 quick. It's it's a millisecond, as he said in that uh, excerpt. It's a millisecond, uh, as opposed to uh, yeah, uh, 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 an hour and a half, an hour, a thousandth of a second. A thousandth of a second sounds fast to us, but uh, uh, he means it, it, it. Just it's almost instantaneous. So he's also, from 1935, he's exploring the use of electronics for telephone uh, exchanges, yes, and the transmission of voice. He's doing all this. And third, by 39, he's convinced that an all-electronic system was uh, possible. He's right, wasn't he? He was right. And he carried out uh, successful long-distance dialing tone trials between London and Bristol. And by 39, the system's in production. Now, this is the groundwork for the Colossus. You, we, 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 you know, we might not understand why, uh, but, the, you know, it is. Interesting, in the interviews, he, he stressed he was not the only pioneer. He said the Dutch and the Swiss were, were uh, very active and big pioneers. And he said to the post office, can I go and visit them to exchange information and to see what they're doing? And you've worked for a big institution. What do you think the post office said? You're not having your holidays on us. <laughs> you can naff off. <laughs> I think... I think things haven't changed. Uh, now, Flowers is a bit... Well, how would you describe Flowers? You didn't meet him, but from what he's been talking about, the fact he well, worked he, um, he He's in love with his work, isn't he? So he's, he's clearly a workaholic. He's, he's reasonably paid, but, you know, he's, he's on low wages compared to, to what he might get out in, in the wider industry. But he was really happy in his work. And, and I once saw a quote that said, you know, if you're, if you're in love with your job, you never work a day in your life because you're doing something that you enjoy. That was me as an oral historian. Oh, right. Yeah, and me. No, you said you hated it at TFO. <laughs> you said you hated all the people you worked with. <laughs> That's not Thanks, true. Mate. That's not true, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, now, uh, his head of research is someone called Gordon Radley, but he's quite well known. Uh, he's even more of a, uh, a workaholic. He's a bit of a warped genius. He's religious, but uh, he was upset about any sort of flippancy or, or careless talk. So he wouldn't have liked you, Gary, because you can be flippant. And, and some careless talk I've noticed occasionally. Uh, phenomenal memory. That's not me. That might be you. Uh, he could re- <laughs> flowers. I remember flowers telling me. That this bastard Radley could read something that Flowers had uh, reported sent in. And, you know, six months later, Flowers would remember the basic outline of what he'd done. But this sod Radley could quote to him minute details from the sodding report that, that Flowers had completely forgotten. So it's crucial to know that there's not, that the, Flowers is not the only very bright genius figure uh, working in, in this whole field. He no, has about, be. he has about, 10 scientists and engineers in his immediate group and then 20 laboratory staff. So what they do is they design something and then they tell the laboratory staff to build it, if, if you yeah. can see what I mean. It, it, it's, uh, have a guess where Flowers was a couple of days before the outbreak of war. Just have a go. On. I, I want you to look at the world as a map of the world. And where would it be inconvenient for one of your top geniuses to be a couple of days before the outbreak of war? Clapton. 
Well, Clacton, it's always inconvenient to be in Clacton. If I have any listeners from Clacton, you can bugger off. <laughs> I am not changing it. Clacton is a shithole and always will be a shithole. Uh, it's worse than. Uh, let's go back to that bit about it's uh, worse being indiscreet. It's worse than Scotland. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. Where Down was he? Down with Clacton. Burn it. <laughs> Where was he? Germany. <laughs> oh, close then. Yeah, well, what the, it's, um, he was actually in Germany. Um, and, and, and if you think about what he does in the war, imagine if he just not... Anyway, he's going to tell the story himself through the medium of Gary. I and another man were British delegates to the International Committee on European Telephones. We went to find out what they'd done and were likely to do at the forthcoming conference, which was due to start on September the 9th, 1939. We got to Berlin in the late afternoon to tell them where we were so they could contact us if things got such that we had to make a quick exit. The young man who dealt with us listened to us and said, You people must be mad. There's going to be a war in a few days. The next day, we spent the whole day discussing the international committee matters, the technical details. The following day, we met the Germans again at nine o'clock. At ten o'clock, we had a telephone call from the British Embassy to tell us to go home by the next boat train, which was going in two hours. Everybody was expecting war. We got on the train and eventually got to Holland, which was after dark. Everywhere was a blaze of light. The Dutch army was mobilising, the same in Belgium. Then we got on the boat and got back to Liverpool Street Station, London, at eight o'clock in the following morning. I like the way he tells you where Liverpool Street Station was. It could be in Liverpool, of course, but it isn't, is it? Always used to fool me that. I used to think, it's not Liverpool. It's not nice. Uh, anyway, uh, so the war begins, and uh, he, 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 it's it's interesting because he'd been a child, well, child and youth in the First World War. Uh, how did he react? I remember Chamberlain's speech. I was listening on the wireless at the time, a bit numb. I didn't know what was going to happen. I thought it was going to be bad because I'd had experience of the First World War, and I thought the Second World War would be worse. But there was nothing I could do about it, so no point in getting worried about it. I was compelled to stay where I was and do what I was told, and I accepted it. Well, of course, he was uh, reserved occupation. He's, work, he's, on, he's carrying out work of national importance, isn't he? Uh, now, uh, he's told to concentrate now. From now on, he's going to work on war-based research programmes. And his first big job, which we're not going to talk about at all, and which I know very little about and which he remembered nothing about, was uh, developing radar stations communication systems. That, that's to allow the radar stations to pass the information they've got instantly or quick as possible to the centre uh, to disseminate the information gained from the radar. You can see why that's you, important. I thought you wasn't going to talk about that. I, well, I changed your mind at the last minute. Now, uh, and this carries on for, for, for until 41. And in February 41, Gordon Radley, that's his boss, was asked for help by Alan Turing. Dun, dun, dun. Now, he's working at Bletchley Park, the government code-breaking establishment, and uh, Radley uh, picks flowers for the task, whatever it's going to be, for Alan Turing. Now, Alan Turing is, uh, is a, is a, a modern-day hero, isn't, isn't he? And uh, uh, I want to make it quite clear that uh, flowers, that people divide into flowers supporters and Alan Turing supporters as to who designed or who built costs. Classes. We think that's all nonsense, don't we? It's just it's it's one person is a theoretical genius and the other person is a practical genius, and it's bloody obvious which is which. Uh, and as Flowers says, you know, he wasn't working alone. There were a team of people working on these things. Yeah, absolutely. Some of whom will never be recognised. Yeah. So some uh, most. I mean, who who was in Flowers' team? Can we name any of them? Radley picks Flowers. Now, what 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 does Flowers? He goes to Bletchley Park. Uh, and uh, we've got a friend who runs Bletchley Park, unless he's been sacked. In the re- I know they've had trouble with COVID. Uh, and we remember his name now, don't we? Dr. David Kenyon. What a yes. lovely chap he was. Tall, handsome, charming. Ne- never swears. That's the thing I always think about him. He never swears. I've never heard a, f- a foul or obnoxious expression pass from his lips. Have you? I think I heard him swear when he fell from the horse and broke both of his arms. That was so funny. I remember when I broke one wrist 
And I, I became aware when I went to the loo. I thought, how does, if you've broken both wrists... Yeah, what? we've gone off at a tangent. So no, let's no. Talk... It, think about it, Gary. You've broken both wrists. How do you wipe your ass? It, it's got to be faced. Well, apparently David Kenyon said you have to have a very good, close, personal friend. There you go. Hello, David. I apologise, ladies and gentlemen. I apologise for Gary. Unreservedly. Now, uh, so, uh, so go on, Ed. So Flowers says, in the afternoon, I spent about two hours with Alan Turing. He explained the technology of code breaking. He was concerned with the Enigma to find the starting positions of the disks of the code rings. And when they'd found that, then they could decode the message. But they needed the equivalent of a coding machine, a decoding machine, to do that. And we didn't have one. In fact, we'd never seen the coding machine. It had all been worked out theoretically what it was. They wanted something girls could operate with a sort of typewriter keyboard. You sexist pig. I'm quoting. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the actual coding machine had a keyboard. The girls just tapped out as if she was typing and the machine decoded the message. But when they got it, they were disappointed. They didn't want it. They expected a box about three foot by two foot. But what we provided them with was a rack of large switches. We thought they wanted reliability and they they were the only switches that would give us reliability. I didn't know they expected a small thing. I gave them the best we could devise. Also, things had changed in their code breaking. The enemy had made some changes to the coding, which made it difficult to break. In fact, they never used what we produced. I think they thought I wasn't any good. So the, his first thing, he's brought in something and uh, it switches all the rest of it. Uh, and it, 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 it's quite frankly a failure. It, it doesn't work. Now, this new coding system. Uh, now, I'm not going to we don't know. We're not experts at all on this. In fact, you could tell we're not experts. But the new German system is generated by a tele typewriter. Uh, and it's it's what's called an inline cipher machine. I don't know what any it's the Lorenz. SZ40 stroke 42. Much better, in my view, than the SZ3941, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what, did, what did the British call it? It's not the Lorenz SZ40 stroke 42. What did we call it? Well, because that trips off the tongue, we called it fish. <laughs> fish, tunny fish, I don't know. But the tunny was often dropped. Fish, yeah. It produces a cycle that's never repeated. And the Germans, what do the Germans think about that? Well, they think that's completely unbreakable because of that fact. It never used the same thing twice. A new sort of traffic came on the air from the Germans. It was it was teleprinter. They did a lot of experimenting with it before they actually put it into service. Had trial runs and so forth. And in fact, they gave us, it was during that period that they gave the secret away. What was the worst mistake was that they sent a message in code, uh, this was in Germany, so I sent a message in code which uh, the receivers couldn't, couldn't receive. So they then sent it in clear. So then, of course, we got both the uh, coded message and the clear message, and from that they were able to deduce how, how the machine worked, how it was constructed, and how it was operated. So, so... That that's that that's they've made a mistake. The Germans have made a mistake, as Tommy just told you. They've made a mistake, so they they, they now know they can deduce how the machine works, uh, everything about it. So what do they do then? Well, in uh, February '43, Alan Turing introduces flowers to Dr. Max Newman. Now he is leading the part to automate part of the crypto anal anal analysis. That's a difficult word to say, isn't it, Gary? Can you say analysis? No. Analysis. <laughs> yes. It's the crypto analysis I fell over, wasn't it? Of the Lorenz cipher, fish cipher. It's a much more complex system than Enigma. And a lot of time, for shorthand, people refer to all this as Enigma, don't they? In fact, we do. Uh, yeah. We, yeah. Um, and the decoding procedure, that basically they've got to try as many, so many, they've got to try so many possibilities to, to work it out, that it's impossible to do it by hand. And so what Dr. Max Newman is another genius, isn't he? He devises the mathematical routines uh, or the processing to determine the setting of the cold wheels for the fish, for the Lorenz. Um, now, the thing is, 
Is is Dr. Newman? What is Dr. Newman? What would you describe him as? The doctor. Yes. Have you got a sore throat? He was also a mathematician, so he had no idea of machinery. So who's who's he going to give the job to? He gives it to Flowers, Tommy Flowers. Uh, and it's it, 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 they give it first. Uh, well, no, <laughs> so I've gone completely wrong. He doesn't uh, give it to Flowers. He doesn't. He actually gives it to the the teleprinter research group at Dollis Hill, which is the same place. It's, it's, so it's a different research group from Flowers' group at. Dollis Hill, uh, and and they're, they're, they're developing a code-breaking mechanical machine based on a teleprinter. Now, they make a prototype, it's, but it's not very successful because they have to have two teleprinter tapes roti- rotating in complete synchronicity. Uh, uh, one has got the code on and one's got the answer on, if you see what I mean, uh, and, and I don't see what I mean, if you, to be absolutely honest. And it's, and it's paper, so presumably it could tear. So how does it run? How does the paper run at, at that speed? It's going to have to use sprocket wheels. Uh, and it, 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 it has to go so fast that they tear or they, or they stretch. It, 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 it doesn't work. It takes so long. One coding run takes several hours and the paper just won't stand up to it. Uh, and the other thing is when they produced their machine, it was unreliable. So now this is the old thing. When you get on the scales in the morning... And then get mm. off and get on mm. again. If it's different, you know you need a new set of scales. But the, 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 this machine produced different answers to the same question sometimes. And that's no good, is it? It's just like your scales often seem to break for some reason after not that long a time, is it? So what you're saying is if they, if they run the same type twice, they get different answers. Yeah. Uh, and that's no right. good. No good at no. all. Well, now, certainly what... not in a, a code-breaking machine. Now, what did they call, and I suspect this is Tommy Flowers' group, <laughs> what did they call this machine? They called it uh, the Robinson. Why? Uh, Why? Well, it's, it's, there was, uh, it's named after the overcomplicated uh, Heath Robinson caricatures. Oh, the, those stupid machines, uh, to, you know, to, to boil an egg involves yeah. a machine the size of a room. Yes, uh, and that's what Robinson seemed like to uh, to Tommy Flowers. And at this point, the problem's given to, uh, to, to, to Flowers' team. So it's given to the new team. Now, here we have a, another, another excerpt from Tommy Flowers. The amount of processing was so great that it would take hours to break any message. And by, that time, by the time he broke me, the information it would be too late to make any use of the information. We calculated that they had to get a a speed of something like 20,000 characters a second, which was uh, fantastic at that time. seemed to be impossible, but we did it in the end. So so I quickly came to the conclusion that the the, um, Robinson would never be any good, that we were wasting our time on it. And and so I thought thought out something different. Before the war, I had been working on thermionic valves as switches, for telephone. So I had some experience in valve switching and I realised that if we used valves for switching instead of mechanical relays, we could get up to the very high speeds and it would be very reliable. Well, I think that explains why they, why, why he, he was right. This is the whole thing, the speed and, and the valves. Uh, and it's going to be, it's not going to be mechanical, is it? It's going to be what? Well, it's an electronic system. And, and this is, in effect, what, what his staff called Colossus. This is the, the embryonic Colossus. Now, why did his staff call it Colossus? Cause well, it presumably because was... it was quite big. I mean, uh, again, you know, from my early career uh, post the army, I remember going into computer rooms in, in uh, businesses and they were, they were whole rooms that were taken up with banks and banks and banks of computers, which we now had sitting on our desks. Yeah, uh, our phones. Yeah, our phones, exactly. So, so Colossus, I should imagine it's called Colossus because it's colossal. And it's got hundreds, hundreds of thermionic valves or valves to I generate... I find it's thousands, Pete. 
Well, uh, I, 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 fully enough, I wrote thousands, and then I thought, hang on, they only had two. I think that's a two and a half at the at the end. So I think that's going too far. So it's interesting uh, debate there. So a uh, se- semantic debate as to when it becomes thousands. Well, I think it was sixteen hundred to start, which is one thousand six hundred. So I take your point. But then it was two and a half thousand. So I take, I take your point. Yeah. A rare, okay, I take your point. I take your point. A rare moment. Uh, so they're, they're using thousands of <laughs> thousands of thermionic valves to generate the wheel patterns electronically, the 12 code wheels of the Lorenz, the fish coding machine. Now, uh, what does uh, what, what, what does Flower say about this? Well, he says there was nobody else in the world as far as I know, using this technology. That's what made it so difficult for me to explain the machine to Bletchley Park because they've got no experience to guide them. I just worked out that using thermionic valves as switches, an analogue machine and a coding machine could be made. Now, um, uh, Bletchley Park, they, react, they, didn't, they didn't see this, did they? They just didn't see it at all. And here's, here's another recording of Tommy explaining the problem he had in just trying to get this across to Bletchley Park. When they suggested it to them, they had the idea that thermionic valves were unreliable things. But I knew that they were reliable if you used them properly. Of course, I've been using them in, in, in large quantities in telephone equipment. If you haven't been a radio set which you, you cart about and bump about and switch on and switch off, then they don't last them. But if you keep them still, don't, don't move them, and never switch them off, they'll go on forever. I knew that, but they wouldn't believe it. But, but what really uh, put them against the uh, uh, idea of uh, the electronic machine was the time that it takes to build. They said to me, how long will it take you to build the first machine? And I said, oh, at least a year. And they said, well, you know, they, they just couldn't wait a year. In a year, the war could be over and lost. Now, what do they decide to do then, Gary? What do they decide well, to do? It, there is a problem. You know, he's, he's told them that uh, they're, they're going to have to wait about a year for the for the first machine. And, they, and understandably, they say they just can't wait. So they ca- they decide to carry on with the Robinson machine. Um, and, and they decide not to commission the Colossus machine from Dulles Park. And, and you've got a great quote from Tommy here. What do they do? Well, he said that they, they said to him, if you feel like making it, you can do it, but it's up to you. So we said, all right, we'll do it on our own responsibility. And it's worth noting how big a thing this is. This is not go- This is This is an amazing step he's taken. He's just taken... He's a man making the difference here, isn't he? It's, it's off his own bat. And in fact, some of his own money went into this. Some of his this. own money, yeah. Yeah. Now, um, how big a role does Alan Turing have, do you think, in the development of Colossus as far as uh, Flowers is concerned? Is he a well, key too, figure? It, no, because it's two separate roles, isn't it? So, so he doesn't think he's key because it's more of a theoretical concept and not the practicalities of building a computer. This is, this is about the theory, proving the theory. Now, uh, he puts together a, a team of about 50 scientists solely developed to building Colossus. Uh, as I said, he even used some of his own money. Uh, but again, Flowers made it clear the algorithms he was using to, to, to sort of... I don't understand any of this. I, don't, I barely know what a bloody algorithm is. In fact, now, let's be honest, I don't know what an algorithm is. It's a thing for working out things. It's why you see certain people on Facebook and don't see other things. It's an algorithm, isn't it? And this is the algorithm to, 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 to sort out the code words. They were designed by William Tutti. Tutti Fruity. Tutti Fruity or Nudy Tutti. Do you think you pronounce it or is it Toot? I'd anyway. say William Toot. And, he'd, and, and his uh, team, to be fair, it wasn't just him, he had a team. So he's got a team as well. So we're, we're emphasising this teamwork business, aren't we? So the Colossus is going to simulate, in a manner which I have no idea how it works, the 12 code wheels of the Lorenz, the fish code. Uh, and it's, it, what it is, is what is developed is similar to a great deal, a great extent, to modern-day computer processing. Uh, and and uh, do we understand this, Gary? Do we understand it? No, not not a bit. Not even a little tiny bit. No, not a so, bit. I mean, this this is this is high level 
mathematics and computing science. But it's high-level mathematics and computing for 1943-4. Surely we understand it now, Gary? No, because the basis is the same. Science doesn't change, does it? Well, no, science does change, but the basis of modern computing hasn't. You know, this is the same basis. And it was complicated then, and it's complicated now. So if you're not a scientist, it's 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 difficult, isn't it? And we we often aren't experts on what we talk on, but in this particular case, well, you're not. Yeah, thank you, Gary. <laughs> you are, Tom, old Tom. But it, it it's just we don't know what we're talking about. Again, <laughs> <laughs> so they start to manufacture the prototype Colossus, and as you rightly said, Gary, it's got something like fifteen hundred valves. I've seen sixteen hundred, and Flowers told me sixteen hundred, but I believe it's fifteen hundred. I've 1500. seen sixteen hundred. Uh, uh, it, 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 and it, it now they start work. When do they start work, Gary? Well, they start in February 1943, and bearing in mind that Flowers had said it would take at least a year, uh, they had it ready on the 8th of December 1943. So 10 months. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Uh, now, does it work? Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't perfect, uh, but it, it, it did work, and it was five times faster and more flexible than the Robinson, and frankly, more reliable. Uh so uh, it, it worked. Now, uh, d- does Tommy sort of leave it to that, Tommy Flowers? Why am I calling him Tommy? Why does Flowers, does he, uh, d- I did, well, I did know him, didn't I? Mm. Anyway, no, I mean, uh, he, he then embarks on a process of redesign and refinement to, to introduce parallel processing to speed it all up. So it, he's anticipating the need for additional computers. So he's already working on Colossus Mark II, uh, which as we mentioned earlier, would employ 2,400 valves. So you'd think that Bletchley would be delighted, wouldn't you? You would think that, wouldn't you? Here's Tommy Flowers describing how Bletchley Park reacted. When, when the first Colossus was a success, and it was a success, we expected Bletchley Park to ask us to give us instructions to make a lot more, but they didn't. We ne- never heard anything from them. We were on our own, but we, of our own uh, volition, we said, well, we're bound to want uh, some more of these. And we started making parts for faith uh, to have, have them ready. But in February 44, we, we got a sudden order from some, fact, uh, some man in uniform came down to Bletchley Park, gave us the order straight from the war cabinet that we had to make 12 of these machines by June the 1st. Now, is that, does that remind you of anything? Uh, no, we don't want anything. We we're not no news, you know. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, what's that expression? The army have it. Civilian life has it. Uh, hurry up and hurry up. What is it? Hurry, wait, wait and hurry up. Oh, hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. It, it's yeah. it's so nothing. And then suddenly, in February 1944, they've got to produce twelve by June the first. So that's the end of May, realistically. So three months. How long did the first one take? Ten months. Ten months. And now they've got to produce 12 in three months. Uh, how did they do it? How did they do it? Well, they basically work day and night. They, they work six days a week flat out. They're, 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 by the end of this, they're almost totally exhausted. They must have been. They must have been. And, and they got the first of these 12 machines. And when, when was it ready? When was it ready? It was uh, 1st of June, 1944. But that's the date so they, they were met. That was the date they said. I think if I was in government, I'd argue it was a day late. <laughs> oh, now, now, the, the thing is, we then step into myth. So this one's up and running and decoding messages from the first of June. What is there? A, is there something big happening round about then, Gary? I can't. I'm yeah, I mean, it's reported to, to have decoded. The is there something messages. coming up? Is there something yeah. coming up? What's what is it? I was trying to tell you, oh. it's reported to have decoded German messages for the uh, for the German battle orders, which helped Eisenhower in making his strategic decisions over D-Day. Oh, D-Day! Yeah. Is that coming? Well, 6th of June, 1944, Pete. It was meant to be a day before, wasn't it? Or was it two days before? It so was meant to be 5th, yeah. It's, it's very tight, isn't it? Very tight. Now, uh, so, so give me some examples there. What and, well, and, uh, can I make it clear that these are things that are said rather than I think historians have actually nailed down? 
so what are the two things, two of the things that are said to have done, that, that, that Colossus is said to have led to? Yeah, you can understand why these things are said. There, there was a report uh, that, uh, uh, a report from Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, who we've all heard of on the Western defences, was decoded by Colossus and, refu- and revealed that one of the sites chosen as the drop site for a US parachute division was in fact the base for a German tank division, and so the site was changed. Oh, oh! anything else? Yeah, a, a Colossus decrypt confirmed Hitler wanted no additional troops moved to Normandy as he was still convinced that the preparations for the Normandy landings were in fact a feint. So, so th- these are important messages. These must have helped Eisenhower, if it is as it seems. And the thing is that the, 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 that there is a lot of mythology about this, uh, and, and, and we're not going to nail our colours to the mast on this, are we? But, well, for uh, one thing, it was it was top secret and, and held as such even after the war. So, no, there, there, there wouldn't be any direct evidence of this, and we'll come on to why that might be later on. Now, uh, what happens to flowers then? Is he? Is he? Are they? Uh, what are they doing? Uh, he, he's funnily enough. He, he he doesn't have much else to do with Colossus, does he? Because his team carry on producing the 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 installation of uh, there's well there's ten Colossus machines are built and installed and running, and then he they have two not yet ready at the end of the war. Um, and uh, he has done that. He, he's put on. Uh, he's producing an electronic machine to uh, to use automatic radar tracking to to lay uh, the uh, anti aircraft guns. I think there's a thing called the predictor. I, bet, I wonder if that's it. I, I'm not sure. Uh, it may be a more sophisticated one. So he's moved off this project, uh, but he's done the main work, hasn't he? Uh, and uh, they they the mathematicians are doing things as well, aren't they? They they're uh, they're working out. They're specifying. Yeah, they, 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 they're looking to bolt things on to cope with any German code changes because we mentioned earlier that you know, there was a problem caused when the Germans changed the code. So they're working out how to preempt that. And and the, 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 this is the interesting thing about that the this is the thing it becomes important to later that it, Colossus is pr- in a sense programmable, not like a modern computer, but you could change it. You know, now uh, what happened to so after the war? What happens? What happens? Uh, it's a great success, isn't it? it? And everyone goes on about Colossus, great success, but we hadn't heard much about it. What happens to them? Well, that's because all but two of them are dismantled at the end of the war. The two that remain are moved to GCHQ in Cheltenham, and uh, they may have been used for code breaking during the Cold War, uh, but they were decommissioned in 1959 and 1960. I think they were used for training right or later on. But it's quite interesting, this... um... Um, GCHQ, now they're pretty open, and uh, you know you can uh, just wander in and have a look at things. Uh, why why do, yeah. is that right? Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> do not fall. <laughs> no. So of course it was completely secret. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. What, Everything what, about it. What did Flowers say? Well, Flowers says, "I and all the team, we were sworn to secrecy. We just forgot about it. I didn't worry about it for thirty years. There was nothing I could do about it." Now, this seems strange to me, Gary. This, this is a man who's invented what, the Colossus. Is it the first computer? To, what, without, again, we're not. there's arguments about this, but what do we think? Well, it had a memory of sorts. It had a variable program and it had a processor. That's so a we're, computer, isn't it? So we're going for it. Uh, we're going for it, uh, especially when they, were, uh, when they were chained up and they were chained up. Then, then they they had the, they they had enough to to pass what was later on called Turing's test. Um, not that Turing designed it, but Turing sort of defines the idea of a computer. We've got to remember that there wasn't such a thing as a computer. It it, it, it defining it is difficult. Uh, I presume there was a huge recognition of flowers after the war. Then no, we know it wasn't, but. Well, no, you you mentioned that right at the start. He got very little recognition for his contribution to cryptoanalysis. There you go, Pete. Uh, the government granted him a £1,000 payment, but that didn't even cover his own personal investment in the equipment. And actually, what he did, he shared much of it amongst his staff. Oh, a good bloke, a good bloke then, yeah. Uh, uh, so so what about all the, his research work and notes? We, well, we he's ordered be, to we... destroy all the documentation and he burnt them in a, in a furnace at Dollis Hill. Uh, he, he later remarked about Churchill's order, it comes from a, Churchill. Blimey. It comes from Churchill. 
That was a terrible mistake. I was instructed to destroy all the records, which I did. I took all the drawings and the plans and all the information about Colossus on paper and put it in the boiler fire and saw it burn. Now, later on, he, he, he tried to get a bank loan to, to, to build another one, didn't he? Uh, to, <laughs> so, <laughs> and what did the bank say? Well, he was denied the bank loan because they didn't believe it could work. And, and he couldn't argue that it, it worked because he'd already designed and built one because the work on Colossus was covered by the Official Secrets Act. So he, he, he couldn't prove that it worked. So so what does he do? He stays at the post office research station until 64, 1964. Uh, he eventually gets an honorary doctorate. Uh, but when, when is his work, when does his work start to be acknowledged, would you say? Well, probably in the 1970s, Pete. To be fair, uh, I think uh, it's Is that about the time the Enigma started? I mean, because there was secrecy about Enigma until about then. Didn't somebody produce a book that sort of blew it, Winterbottom, I think, sort of blew it out, it sort of exploded it into public view, didn't he? They did, uh, and, and he gets an honorary doctorate at this time. Um, so there is some recognition, not, not a great deal, but it is something. Not all the papers were destroyed, were they? Uh, because... They, well, well no, it, there's, there's a, 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 a rebuild, a functioning Colossus Mark II's built by a team of volunteers, which was led by Tony Sal uh, between 1993 and 2008. And you can actually see it at the National Museum of Computing at Bletchley Park. But but just think about how long that took, 93 to 2008. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, now, I was sent by the my MP, to, to, uh, Rudy Viss. He wasn't even in his constituency. He lived... Uh, he lived further over in North London um, to see him because Rudy was desperate. Uh, Rudy was Dutch and he he thought a lot of Tommy Flowers because he lived in Holland as a child. <laughs> and he just thought he couldn't understand why it wasn't recognised and he wanted to do something more for him. But sadly, I'm afraid that uh, he never managed to get anything done because uh, Tommy Flowers died on the 28th of October 1998. He'd had a good, he'd had a good innings. Uh, but that's actually in the same year as I interviewed him. So he died before Rudy could actually get anything done or any of the other MPs. Um, he was aged 92. He'd had a, he'd had a, a good innings, hadn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, now, if you want to hear more about him, uh, the best way to do it is to type in to your internet-y thing, uh, Tommy Flowers and then IWM. And that should bring you out to uh, the thing. It's on the Imperial War Museum website, all three hours of it, and you can listen to it. Um, what do you think? We've talked about him now for a bit. What do you think of Tommy Flowers? Do you, th do you think he was badly treated, or, or was he just another person whose contribution to the war wasn't properly one of thousands, perhaps, perhaps millions? Well, it's, it, it's probably one of many. Uh, I think the big issue is that... Uh, uh, he was working in a field, as he himself says, where it's difficult to explain because there's there's nothing to compare it to. And I think that probably worked against him. Uh, and, and, you know, Turing himself was not recognised for different reasons for a very long time. Um, and, and, you know, it's only recently that this sort of thing is coming out uh, into the light and we're, and we're looking at it. My view is... It was a computer. He invented a working computer. Didn't know he was doing it, but he no. did it. But he did it, yeah. Well done, Tommy Flowers. I think we agree on that. Well, thanks, Gary. I've, I've enjoyed it. something different today, wasn't it? Some parts of it were very different, Pete, yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?